0: Good afternoon, everyone. This is Alan Murabayashi, broadcasting live from Photo Shelter World Headquarters here in New York City. Thanks for joining us for I Love Photography. Um, and today happens to be our 25th episode. So I pulled out the wind chimes back here. They give us the 25th episode wind chime. Ooh. <laughs> if you're watching us on YouTube at youtubecom photoshelter, you get to see all of the photos that we're looking at. As I stop this wind chime. And if you're listening to the podcast, which you found on iTunes by searching for I Love Photography, you should go to our blog, blog.photoshelter.com, to see all of the links to all the stories that we're talking about today. My regular co host Sarah Jacobs is still on vacation in Europe, taking some great photos, I'm sure. We'll see her next week. Um, and I'm kind of bummed not to be celebrating the 25th with her, but we'll get to the 26th with her. We have a lot of photography to talk about today, as usual, and there are actually a lot of social issues that we're going to talk about today. seems to be a lot going on. As you recall, uh, not so surprisingly, um, because it's all been all over the news, that Malaysian Airlines uh, airplane was shot down, allegedly by uh, Russian separatists using uh, anti-aircraft missile coming from Russia or supplied to them by Russia, I should say, allegedly, we don't really know uh, completely yet. Uh, The U.S. and other uh, allies are assembling some proof uh, to try to to convince other European nations that this is the case, but at any rate what we're really talking about is the photography of that. And last week we showed some photography that was showing up on the New York Times and shortly thereafter, because it was such a fresh event, uh, we started seeing some pretty amazing photography And Jerome Sassini, who's a French photographer, um, had a whole light box. He's one of the first guys on the scene. And he had a whole uh, set of images that was on the Time Life box. And Time ran these images um, and had this warning slide at the beginning of the set, which says some of the following images are graphic in nature and might be disturbing to some viewers. And of course, the first image which we'll look at here is. a body that fell through the roof of a home um, and is just kind of lying there. And clearly this is a pretty violent imagery in terms of, you know, who is this person, this lifeless body uh, and whatnot. And there was obviously concern on the part of the, the editors there at Time um, to make sure that there was some sort of warning. Um, because. Some segment of the population is obviously very desensitized to this kind of stuff. Other people are much more sensitive and then of course you have to worry about kids having access to this stuff and whether they have enough experience to sort of contextualize what they're seeing. But incredible images uh, nonetheless. And then uh, over the weekend the New York Times ran this particular image on their front page. So there was no warning symbol. There was no uh, explanation. But it's a body um, covered by a plastic bag uh, in the rain in a field. As we know, the, the jet was down in, in a wheat field, and so we see a lot of bodies just in the field there. And as you might expect, they got a lot of uh, emails and letters uh, concerned about The Times' decision to put this on the home page. And so the public editor there. There's a public editor uh, who's works as ombudsman for the Times, kind of checks and balances against the, what they're reporting and what they're saying, and pointing out obvious bias, etc. And the public editor talked to the editor of the the Times, Dean Bequiat, and he said, "This is not the time for antiseptic coverage." Um, quote, we are going through a remarkably violent chapter in the world, and we're irresponsible if we don't reflect that. And it it harkens back to all of the conversations that have gone on in the industry before in regards to showing uh, photos of fallen soldiers. Um, You know, there were some very violent uh, things that happened to soldiers in Iraq where they were hung and burned, and whether we should be transmitting and showing those. And, of course, the military had for a long time a ban on showing... uh, caskets coming off the plane etc. and it also reminded me of the boston bombing um, and i wrote a piece on the photo shelter blog last year about how the atlantic decided to blur the face of one of the victims and initially they were saying we wanted to protect his privacy you know there's always this concern about the family seeing the photo this way before they're they're necessarily notified um, and whatnot, not and, and my conclusion which is the same conclusion that I think that a lot of people are coming to right now is is it's super important to have these images available to people whether you put it on the front page that might be a little arguable because of the, the violent nature of the image I didn't particularly think that the times image was very graphic because it's covered in a bag and you see some legs sticking out of course again like if you're a kid that might freak you out but most adults have seen that type of imagery before, but we want to show this violent world we live in because hopefully it'll it'll spur change, it'll cause people to act, it'll, ask, it'll cause people to ask questions about their government, about what other people are doing, um, who we're supporting, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So in that sense photography fulfills a very important social function and I think at least in the US it's easy to forget kind of the freedom of the press and the freedom of speech that were sort of afforded, we take it for granted that in a lot of places this type of stuff can't be published or criticism of the government can't be published. And so I think that when we get to this very sort of cerebral and academic analysis of the situation, we have to support um, publishing of this type of imagery with or without uh, warnings and caveats, etc. I I, I just think that there's a very important social function that that this, that, uh, that this all supports there, so I'm all for that. Other huge issues going on in the U.S., of course, the immigration reform bills that are going on in Washington and all the concerns about whether immigrants are good or bad for the country, or whether we should be allowing illegals in or they have to follow the, uh, the letter of the law in regards to uh, becoming a citizen and being naturalized. Michelle Frankfurter, who is a photo shelter member, has been photographing Central American migrants on what's known as El Tren del Muerto, or the Train of Death, searching for a new life. So people are coming up from Central American countries on Mexican freight trains um, and riding in these boxcars or on top of boxcars uh, for a better life. And, you know, we talked about uh, uh, several times the Instagram account uh, called at everyday Africa and how a bunch of photographers in Africa are just putting up Instagram photos of everyday life in Africa in part to dispel stereotypes that people might have about what Africa is and what goes on in Africa you know there's obviously this sort of like oh there's you know people with rings around their neck running around the Serengeti killing lions which might be the reality for a very very small subsection of Africans but of course there's just like normal everyday things that go on in Africa a lot of the concerns for people in uh, the African nations are the same as anyone around the world and so this type of photography in Michelle's uh, essay does this wonderfully is showing us kind of quote everyday people trying to better their lives and in this case uh, you know going on the train A lot of people get killed. It's not a safe environment. People fall off the train, they get hit by trees, by branches. They're attacked, they're mugged, they're raped, Um, and yet they still kind of go through and do it because they are so desperate to get to a better place, which if we can be a little US-centric right now, the US represents to them. Really, really poignant piece uh, running in the Washington Post. She's been working on the project uh, since 2010. So this is a long-term passion project for her, personal, very personal project for her. And it's wonderful, wonderful photography that we're seeing here on the Washington Post. And then the last, uh, social justice, kind of involving citizen journalism. If you live in New York, you've probably heard about this. If you, ha- if you don't live in New York, you've still probably heard about this, because whenever the NYPD misbehaves, it seems to get in the national news. A guy by the name of Eric Gardner, uh, who has a long arrest history for selling loose cigarettes, which is illegal, um, was confronted by cops after he broke up a fight. Uh, They tried to arrest him, he resisted, Uh, a cop jumped on his back and allegedly choked, although when you watch the video it pretty much looks like a choke to me. And as a result of the takedown um, and complications, probably with his weight, uh, he's 6'5", 350, he's a big guy, he died. And the cops kept him in handcuffs, so he had trouble breathing. He said, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, multiple times. They left him on the ground. The EMT showed up uh, you know, several minutes later. Uh, they didn't um, apply any CPR. They just kind of shook his body and told him to breathe. Uh, at which point he might have been dead already, but they took him in the ambulance, carried him off on a stretcher after seven minutes, and uh, was pronounced dead at the hospital. So there are two separate citizen journalists who were taking video, and we're looking at some of the stills from that. There was Eric's friend who shot the takedown and the choke incident, and there was another woman who shot the EMT response after he had already been on the ground. And again, when we talk about the mission of citizen journalism and freedom of press to thwart oppressiveness, uh, I can't think of a a more clear-cut example. Now, of course, there's been a lot of people in law enforcement on these uh, forums where cops hang out saying, "This wasn't a choke. the guy's a fat bastard. he was going to die anyway. The choke. You know the choke was not a choke, and whatever. you know, he resisted arrest. you're not supposed to resist arrest. So if he hadn't resisted arrest, he this wouldn't have happened. But a lot of other people are saying, and this is my opinion too, is you don't arrest a guy for selling Lucy's, you know, We call the loose cigarettes Lucy's. You don't arrest a guy for selling Lucy's and then put him in a chokehold when he's trying to reasonably have a conversation with you he didn't he didn't take a defensive posture he didn't swing and then more importantly once he's on the ground and he's saying he's having trouble breathing the humanitarian thing to do the civil thing to do would be to let him breathe sit him up take the cuffs off for a moment let him breathe if you're an EMT for God's sake when you get on the scene give him some CPR and some oxygen so you know I know there's a there's a a strong political undertone, whenever you're talking about citizen journalism, whether we're talking about the Ukraine or we're talking about immigrants or we're talking about the NYPD mistreating uh, somebody they're trying to arrest, you can't deny that this serves a real function. Um, And that's why I think photography, this type of photography, this photojournalism is so, so important in society. Just really sad to see all of this stuff this week. Switching gears, as we often do on this show, to something completely different. Over on the Google Webmaster blog, this is what they're uh, showing now on devices that don't support Flash. It says, under the URL for the search results, uses Flash, may not work on your device. And then it has two links under that, one that says try anyway, and the other one that says learn more. So this is kind of a passive-aggressive way, or maybe not so passive-aggressive way, of Google to say, hey, stop using Flash. It's not working on mobile devices, and we know more and more people are accessing the internet off of mobile devices, and it's something that we've been saying for years, which is if you're a photographer and you have a Flash-based website, you are not serving your marketing needs appropriately. People are coming to your site on mobile devices, whether it's an iPhone, iPad, Galaxy, what what have you, and they might not be able to see your site. And technologies like HTML5 have existed for years, and there's no reason not to get on the bandwagon. Everything that you could do on a Flash website for on a photography site can be done now uh, with HTML5 and, and JavaScript. And uh, the PhotoShelter Beam websites uh, are case in point for that, as are many other websites that are out there. So you have a lot of options. The one option you shouldn't consider is continuing to use your Flash website. That's my personal bias, but here's Google saying that's pretty much the case. So come on, come on, people. Get off the Flash website. We always like to talk about drone photography. (laughs) Whenever we talk about drone photography, we're often talking about our friend Eric Chang, who uh, is the director of photography over at DJI Phantom, uh, the maker, one of the largest makers of drones, at least for the consumer segment. And uh, Eric went out with uh, photographer Jeff Cable one day to meet Steve Wozniak and his wife, Janet. And they went to uh, a football field. Woz came out with his Segway. And uh, Eric and Jeff brought out a bunch of uh, drones that had uh, gimbals on them and little GoPro cameras or, or uh, DJI Phantom cameras on them, and they filmed Waz and his wife going around on these Segways. Um, and it's just, it's just kind of funny to see Waz, who, if you know anything about Waz, he's a co-founder of Apple Computer. He's just a funny guy. And you're getting shots here that you just couldn't have done before uh, drones existed, right? A helicopter shot would not have been able to get so close. Uh, The drones fly very close to their heads and if they fall on their heads, you know, they get a couple minor scratches, but no one's gonna get seriously hurt. And it's just funny to see Waz on a Segway because Segways are funny. Um, And it's just a cute video, (laughs) so. I, I always get a little FOMO. I always get a little jealous when I see Eric doing cool things like this. I think it might be time for me to go out and get a drone. Uh, DJI Phantom has the Phantom Two Plus, which looks like a pretty sweet uh, getup. So we'll see. We'll see. Maybe I'll surprise you guys with uh, my own drone video or drone photos in the future. Uh, the site Uncrate, which features. I think it's accurate to say features gear for dudes Um, and they highlighted an app called One Hour and One Hour lets you take a photo but it doesn't let you see it until one hour so they're sort of simulating this old-school notion of having your film developed so there's not this instant gratification and the justification for it is you don't wanna lose moments by constantly chimping your photos Right? Yeah. Looking at the photo immediately after you take it uh, isn't doing you any favors and it's making you really dependent on the gratification rather than the process of taking photos. So, One hour photo, um, I believe it's free in the App Store, allows you to take this photo and then it shows up in a photo roll uh, an hour later. I-, I think it's an interesting concept. I think it might be something that would be interesting for photo students photo students who never grew up with film um, and didn't have to consider everything sort of in camera before they took the shot, whether it was composition or exposure, et cetera. Um, I think it's an interesting exercise, mental exercise to go through so that you understand the process and hopefully hone your craft a little bit tighter, but ultimately I can't see, you know, everyday photographers being satisfied with this tool because. At the end of the day, it's just kind of a kind of a gimmick, if you know what I mean. So I, I applaud the effort, but I think that it's a little strange. But I might check it out. Everything's in black and white. I don't know. Look, the, they look they look cool. They look cool. Who knows? They look cool. Hasselblad has released the CFV 50C CMOS back for the V system cameras. So if you ever owned or if you do own a Hasselblad 501 or 503 uh, etc, the types of Hasselblads that went to the moon Hasselblad now has a $15,000 50 megapixel CMOS digital back for you. Uh, It's the same sensor that they put into their top-of-the-line Hasselblad digital camera, 50 megapixels huge Huge uh, ISO range compared to the old CCD backs. You can throw it into a square mode, although there'll be a crop factor. A lot of uh, the reason why they did that is they said even though they discontinued the V-line, there's still a huge interest in uh, these historical cameras. I guess we can call them historical now. I actually own a 501, um, and I love the notion of having a digital back for it. I just don't love the notion of spending $15,000 on it, because as expensive as film and developing is for that camera, I just can't see myself recouping that because I'm not a professional <laughs> photographer. But boy, would I like to try this. Now, when you put my fandom aside for this camera, you can also go back to all of these weird, questionable decisions that Hasselblad has been making in the past couple of years their lunar series if you know they took Sony NEX sixes and they slapped different accoutrements like wooden handles on them and tried to sell them at much higher prices I don't understand what's going on with Hasselblad I mean I I, I know that the medium format market is a, is a very tough market it's not a very large market these cameras cost you know twenty thirty forty thousand fifty thousand dollars a piece um, and so it's a little bit, bit, a little bit questionable that they're releasing a $15,000 back. Um, and the other thing is, you know, because it's, a, it's a, a three to two aspect ratio, it's a rectangular sensor. Even though it's you know, four times larger than your 35 millimeter, it's a rectangular sensor. And if you want to shoot in portrait mode on the rectangular sensor, you have to get a prism attachment for the camera. It's not like the old school backs, digital backs, where you could just rotate them 90 degrees and it would be fine. That's not how this back works. So it's challenging, because if you're doing portraiture and you want to do a, a portrait aspect ratio, you're going to have to get more than just the back. Or you're going to have to like throw it on its side and look through the camera on its side. It's just, it's weird. It's weird. But Hasselblad, if you want me to try it out, send it over, okay. <laughs> Over on the Atlantic, we've talked a fair amount, you know, when we're discussing the social photography, we've talked a fair amount about uh, cultural issues. And I love talking about the impact of photography uh, from a cultural standpoint, because so much of photography now is social photography, um, as a lot of pundits have referred to it, where it's more like communication than it is necessarily documenting or commercializing a product and whatnot and uh, over on the Atlantic website uh, one of their uh, journalists, Alexis Madrigal has an article called Baby Photos and Clinging to My Principles Um, and when he had a baby, he decided that he wasn't going to publish photos on social media or if he was going to post it on social media they were going to be in closed groups not on Facebook, not on Twitter etc. and he's found that as his child has gotten a little bit older, he wants to publish photos, not just to his friends but to the world at large. It's kind of an interesting psychology of, you know, I'm so proud of my kid, I'm so thrilled that I want a larger audience but he's also very aware of all of the privacy concerns and there have been other articles that have preceded this about people saying I'm never gonna post a, a photo on my kid because they deserve to make that decision to enter into the world of the internet and social media and the photos always up there for the rest of their life they deserve to make that decision for themselves so the end of the essay is I'm kinda slowly gradually deciding that I want to release photos of my kid online and this is the photo where he's comfort, comfortable uh, with at the time and it's a photo taken from above of his child's head next to a garden. And I I applaud it. I mean, I I understand the concerns about a child being put into social media I personally think like a lot of those concerns are sort of unfounded. I think that if you're a parent and you're not trying to embarrass your child, then having the photos up there, particularly in a society where hundreds of millions of photos are uploaded in any given day, or are created in any given day, you know, the chances of one photo of you as a baby affecting the rest of your life, I'm sure there'll be cases. Where that is true, but it's literally going to be like one in a billion when that actually happens. Like, oh, look at this baby—he was eating a bug, and now he's uh, vegan. You know, like, are we really concerned about that? Are we really concerned about that for the millennials and the generation that that follows them? I don't know. I don't know. But a really interesting essay on photography and culture. Love it. The last thing that we have for you today. Another, another photojournalism sort of social issue, humanitarian uh, story here. The Norwegian photographer Harald Henson uh, is over in Gaza covering that conflict. As you might know, uh, Hamas and Israel um, have started a kind of violent campaigns against each other. Um, and however you feel about the situation, and obviously there are people that are pro-Palestine uh, or a pro-Palestinian state, are they're pro-Israel, the one thing that I don't think you can dispute is it's a tragedy when civilians are caught up in this. And it doesn't matter whether Hamas is putting uh, missile batteries next to hospitals or whether Israel is going in and kind of indiscriminately killing people uh, and vice versa, when civilians are killed in conflicts started by uh, respective governments, it's tragic. This particular uh, story over on Petapixel is about uh, Harold Henson who was shooting a report. He's a photojournalist. He was shooting a report with a videographer when a bomb went off. Uh, He ran to go take pictures of the carnage. Uh, He found a child that was injured. He helped to apply first aid and he carried that child to the ambulance and then promptly picked up his camera and started shooting again. There's always been a lot of questions about when uh, photojournalists are in a situation where they could uh, render aid to someone. Should they render aid and put down their camera or should they keep shooting photos because the importance of those photos outweighs helping someone? And there's no clear-cut answer to that. There are clearly cases where other people are there to render help, other people who are more qualified, et cetera. There are clearly cases where there's not enough time. You make the choice between taking the picture or helping the victim. Uh, as was the case uh, with a Daily News uh, photographer here in New York when uh, a man stumbled onto the train tracks and was killed. Um, and the photographer didn't try to help, he just took the photo of that. But in this case, uh, Harold helped the child, who doesn't look like he was uh, badly injured, and uh, took him to the the ambulance and resumed what he was supposed to be doing, which is taking pictures. So with all of the carnage going on in the world, photographers are still doing great work both as photographers and as citizens of their respective communities or communities that they're visiting. Um, so go go photographers and go photography. Whew, that was a pretty heavy <laughs> 25th episode that we had there. Um, But again, a lot of great photography. You can see all the links at blog.photoshelter.com. And as usual, if you have any comments, concerns, suggestions, tweet us at hashtag ilovephoto. We'd love to hear from you. And next week, we'll have Sarah Jacobs back and hopefully a lot more witty banter and insight. So I hope to see you then. Have a great weekend, bye-bye.